Hello and welcome to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. Today we will be meeting Mark Stevenson, the reluctant futurist and advisor to governments and big business. He's not only a strategic thinker, he's also a stand-up comedian and songwriter. We'll be meeting Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics at the London Business School and author or co-author of The Hundred Year Life. He's looking at longevity and how that will impact the world we live in. And we're meeting Dr. Safia Umoja Noble, Associate Professor at the Department of Information Studies at UCLA and the best-selling author of the book Algorithms of Oppression, an inquiry into the algorithms that run our lives. With me today, we have Rob Gardner and Vicky Foster from St. James's Place. Welcome, both of you. Uh, what are you looking forward to particularly on the show? Rob? Yeah, hi, Matt. Hi, Vicky. Uh, for me, it has to be uh, Andrew Scott. I, I, I'm, I love the idea of a 100-year life and both what it means to be living longer and this idea that every single one of us has got more years ahead of us than we've ever had. It literally transformed the way you think about your future. And Vicky, what about you? I'm particularly looking forward to listening to Dr. Sophia. I think just this thought around algorithmic biases and how we really need to start to challenge these enduring assumptions and this kind of locked-in ideology that we've we've all got. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. And bringing that theme home, the idea of challenging the world we think we know and the lenses we see it through – I'm most looking forward, I think, to Mark Stevenson. One of the things he does is he calls himself the chief annoying question asker and somebody who can help companies, governments and individuals to strip away the things that they think they know and all the assumptions on which their previous decisions have been based. I spoke to Mark this week. There are qualifications you can get in future studies, but there are no qualifications that you have to get in order to say you're a futurist. So that A, there's a lot of charlatans out there. They tend to be what I would call techno-fetishists, that technology will solve all our problems. You know, I'm a geek. I'm a big fan of the power of technology, but the problems we have are mostly philosophical and about governance and about ethics and how we relate to each other and the planet. And technology is not going to solve those questions. They also associate with prediction. And if you look at the history of predictions made by futurists, they're all wrong because A, the world is too complex and B, people predict from within their own set of prejudices. So most of them are asking the wrong questions, coming up with the wrong answers. And the third reason I don't like predictions is that they're very passive in that you can pay a fortune to McKinsey or whoever to make a prediction, which will be wrong by definition almost. And then it just says, well, you've just got to prepare for this already ordained thing. Whereas my brand of futurism, if I have one, is to say to my clients, well, what kind of future would we like? What are the big questions the future is asking us about climate change, retreat of democracy, failures of the markets to price risk, all that kind of stuff? And how can you answer those, given the position you're in, to make the world better for our children, basically? What fascinates me is how you can get people, your clients or the people that you're talking to, to kind of almost distance themselves from the things and to unlearn, I suppose, their, their life's worth of prejudices I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. And really, there's, there's two main strands to it. One is you've got to take people out of their head and get them into their heart and their gut. So I like to say that the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. So you've got to find out what the feeling is. And a lot of people s- sort of suppress their feelings in the workplace. And their, their whole soul is screaming out to think about things like justice and, and inequality and whatever. But at work, you know, they're told, you know, 
don't bring that in here. And so their salaries become bribery, not reward. Bribery to be complicit in a, syst- a system that they don't really like. And that's so A, you've got to get them out of that and say, well, it's ridiculous. And there's t- I guess there's two main techniques I use. One is getting them to ask the right question. Now, that's quite hard because, because of this point you brilliantly mentioned about all our own prejudices. How do you ask yourself the question you don't know you should be asking yourself and you can't even see you should be asking yourself because you're stuck inside a set of questions that are comfortable to you? So one of the things I did was I stole, I stole a technique of a guy called Rodney Brooks, who I wrote about in my first book, uh, a very successful entrepreneur and scientist. And he says, I just make a list of all the assumptions in any scientific discipline or business model. And then I go down them and I say, which ones aren't true anymore? They were true when they started, but they're not true now. And which ones, which ones won't be true five years from now? And then what questions does that raise? I set my team to answering those questions. Therefore, I'm streets ahead of my competitors because I don't even know the questions exist. While you're sort of saying this, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea of these assumptions and these awakening moments that you bring to people. And of course, this does bring us on to COVID being the elephant in the room. And one of the things that I know, you know, I've been very excited about, as has everybody, that actually this can change our idea of what a city could be, is the idea of the great big city fit for purpose. The other thing, of course, is fascinatingly, it's taken this to, I suppose, to wake people up out of the idea that an office is the most efficient way to gather capability. And now that you see it, you can sort of think, well, we could have had this 10 years ago. We could actually have all been working you know, remotely or in a distributed way 15 years ago once Skype was up to speed. Now, you've also, you've called COVID a light training exercise for the, for the decisions we're, we're going to have to face quite soon for climate. How can we stop this happening again in terms of the, the, the laziness that makes us stay with the status quo until it's too late. COVID's been brilliant, actually, in, in many ways for helping people think the impossible. I mean, it used to be that I would have to spend five or six days disabusing my clients of some assumptions they were living under. And now I turn up and it's like somebody's driven a truck through there already and I can just start work, which is great. Uh, and they're much more open to trying new things because they've had to try new things very, very quickly, you know, and without knowing whether they're going to succeed or not. So there's a new appetite for kind of this kind of stuff. What's been interesting about COVID, in fact, I was writing a speech about this the other day um, for one of my clients, and um, he was of the opinion that when COVID hits, things like climate change and inequality and all the big issue stuff would kind of disappear from people's front of mind as they just got on with the day-to-day, day-to-day of getting through COVID. But actually, I think what's happened is that people have kind of perceived that actually the pandemic is kind of a symptom of our broken relationship with the world. And therefore, things like climate change and inequality have actually become more front of mind because you think, well, if that's there's going to be more of that, I don't want that and I'm scared of that. But I mean, the money's shifted now. That's what I'm finding really fascinating when it comes to climate. I'm working with a number of private banks. When you've got private banks saying to, the, saying to me, we're thinking of becoming a B Corp, we're going to offset all our historical emissions and try and convince all our clients to do the same. When they can see the, the commercial opportunities of doing something are much better than the commercial opportunities of not doing something. The only thing is, of course, we're just late to this game. I mean, I've been banging on about this for 20 years. But, you know, as the Chinese proverb goes, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, next best time is now. Have you felt that there is a, I suppose, a momentum behind a shift towards thinking outside one's own very narrow purview and to, to, to assessing these new kinds of risks? I mean, it's quite interesting that, you know, people, uh, things I've been banging on about 15 years are now kind of becoming common parlance. So one of the, you know, I'm a special advisor on peace, security and climate change to the Ministry of Defence. And one of the things that, you know, people have been saying, and I've been saying for a while is that actually the biggest national security threat for any nation is climate change. And therefore, militaries should be putting that up the agenda of their governments. And actually, that, that threat knows no borders. So there has to be some kind of cooperation on peace 
and decarbonizing across militaries. That kind of narrative I was pushing two or three years ago, you know, you'd be sitting with generals in their suits and whatever and their uniforms and they'd be saying, it's all very nice, Mark, you know, kind of get it, but you know, come on. And now they're all, and now it's now it's, you know, part and parcel of the whole security agenda. So when the world's militaries are turning around to each other and going saying, how do we cooperate on climate change? So all this stuff is definitely going on now, but it is way too late. And it has taken COVID to, to wake us up. The silver lining, I guess, to the hor- horrific nature of COVID is, is maybe it's just the wake-up call we needed. I was going to ask at the top of this about your credo of optimism for the future. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about the future, but I'm definitely possibilistic about it. So, you know, my, my belief is it, it could be better. And therefore, why don't we have a go at that rather than saying, oh, it's all going to be terrible because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, if you went for a job interview thinking you weren't going to get it, guess what? You're not going to get it, right? So if, you, if, you, if we don't fall in love with the idea of a beautiful future, then how on earth are we going to create it? So one of the things I did quite a lot of my clients, like you've got to fall back in love with the future because only then will you believe that it's worth fighting for. And, and too much of the sort of environmental debate and all that kind of stuff has been about saying it's all a disaster. You're going to have to just give up everything. You're an evil human being, and and you will never redeem yourself for the the the, the crimes you and your generation have committed. And there's a, there's a valid argument for saying, well, that's you know, from an alien looking from outside, this would probably go well. There's a there's a fair that's a fair assessment from one point of view. But it doesn't help because we've got to take all those people and go. No, you're a wonderful, unique human being. There's somewhere that we can go together. There we can create a better future, but in order to do that, you're going to have to throw away or get rid of or be relieved of, thankfully at last, some of these old dogmas. I mean, one of the things that one of my clients recently says, uh, the great thing about COVID was it's kind of released me from the pressures of consumerism. And what a relief. I I suddenly realized that, you know, the economy didn't work when people only bought what they needed. And that made me rethink everything. Talking to Mark Stevenson there, the really interesting thing that came out of that is is how to ask the questions that you yourself don't know you need to be asking. Is that something that rang true for for you, talking to clients and and getting people out of their ruts, I suppose, of of their habitual investments and the way that they think about the challenges that we've got to face? Yeah, no, so as Mark was talking, uh, this idea of getting inside your head, it, it reminds me of some research done by Hal Hirschfield at UCLA which is why is it that we relate to ourselves, our future selves, like we do to strangers? So logically, we're living longer. We kind of all know that. And therefore, logically, if we want to live comfortably in old age, we would save. And yet in America and the UK and around the world, savings rates have been going lower. So that doesn't make any sense. So at UCLA, they tracked the brain activity of all these people and got them to think about their current selves, their past selves, and their future selves. And it turns out the brain activity when they think when you think about your future self, Matt, is the same as you might be thinking about someone you don't know about. And therefore, in that context, if I say to you, Matt, why don't you save for the future? It's the equivalent of me saying, Matt, why don't you save for your postman's pension? And you go, well, why, why would I do that? It just doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. So I, I always think one of the best things that we can do for our clients is, is get in their heads and and the questions I always ask is, how long will you live? Do you even have any sense of how long you will live? If you live to 100, you know, does that change how you think about it? For people approaching retirement, you know, what do you think your living expenses or your medical bills will be? Where will you live? Will you still live in the same house that you've lived in for the last 20, 40 years? What will inflation be for the next 30 years? Will it be more than the last 30 years, less? 
the same. What will happen to interest rates? They've they've moved a long way in the last 30, 40 years. What will happen for the next 30, 40 years? And you know, what will happen to financial markets? Where and how are you going to invest your money to, to kind of solve all of those things? So I would say for most people, they have never asked themselves that that question. And it reminds me of a brilliant billboard by Prudential in the US. And it, you look at it when you're driving along and it simply says this, you have spent more time reading this sign than you have thought about your retirement, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> That's the, 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 the chill hand of time's winged chariot hurrying near, if ever there was one. Vicky, Vicky this, I know this is something close to your heart as well, the idea that we must all kind of challenge ourselves to step out of those things that we do by rote uh, and, and thinking about that in terms of our life paths and so on. What, what came out for you from, from Mark? Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to Rob, speak then and it reminded me of a conversation I had recently with my financial advisor and something Mark said as well about the uncertainty of the future and the ambiguity and I wonder it's part of the human condition that we want to create certainty we want to control things and I I go back to the conversation I had with my advisor around you know what what does the future look like and I think part of the issue is we want to be right about it. So we want to say, well, it looks like, you know, retirement at this age, it looks like an income of this, it looks like I'll be doing X, Y, and Z. Whereas I think the point Mark is making, for me at least, is we need to get comfortable with the concept that we're not never going to be right. It's about painting the picture of what we would like it to look like, but then having the capacity to accept that actually things are going to happen in our future that mean we're going to have to adapt and we're going to have to be flexible and we are going to have to challenge some of the assumptions that we made when we were thinking about what we might want to do in 10, 20 years time. So it really resonated for me in terms of that mindset being open to not being able to control everything and uncertainty. Have we found then, I mean, there's a thing I didn't get the chance to talk to Mark about, which which is, I suppose, that I, I think it was Alan Greenspan said, you know, when the when the tide goes out, you get to see who's not been wearing bathing trunks. And, and you know, with thinking about this, this moment of pure disruption that we've had, I suppose, with lockdowns and uh, and the pandemic, and you've got companies, you know, whose whole models like WeWork was based on the idea that people would need more office space in concentrated city centres and so on. I mean, are we? Uh, have you had, uh, Rob, I suppose, a lot of calls from people going, hang on a minute, construction then, is that a good portfolio to have? Are we looking at kind of people thinking about the way in which their favoured sectors might have been blown up? Yeah, and I, 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 I love the Rodney Brooks assumptions and what are still true and what what aren't true. And I think, you know, if I if I had a pound for every call I had with a partner or a client about what's our exposure to Pfizer, let's say, surely Pfizer's gonna actually Pfizer's stocks haven't done as well as people expected, right? And so the question was, are your fund managers all you know invested in in pharmaceuticals? At the beginning of lockdown, Zoom did phenomenally well as a stock, uh, a share price. Uh, there were a whole lot of stocks that did, and then that's sort of changed over the last six months. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that that we force ourselves to do is have these investment beliefs, which are what are the assumptions that haven't changed? And, you know, our assumptions are when we're trying to build portfolios for our 830,000 clients is 
always start with what's their goal. You know, is it someone who's retired and wants an income? Is it someone like Vicky or me or you, Matt, who probably have a family and are still saving for that future? Uh, then there's, you know, your strategic asset allocation really matters. You know, how much you have in equities, how much you have in bonds, how much you have in property. And then the diversification really matters. And I could go through all of them, but there are some sort of principles or assumptions and we road test them and then go, have they changed or haven't they changed? And so let's say within diversification, there were different styles of investing. You've got this concept called value investing, which is very, very popular, you know, 50, 50 years ago and was kind of the dominant way of investing, but had fallen out of favor over the last decade. Then you've got growth investing, which has been what everyone thinks. And growth investing, you think of Netflix and Google and Facebook, and that's done phenomenally well over the last 10 years, actually not so well over the last six months. And then you've got quality. Quality companies are your Nikes, your Disneys, your VWs. And, and I think all we do is say, look, you should have a mixture of all three. You should be global you shouldn't have all your eggs in the basket because we can't predict the future and and so often people are craving for this you know guess who's going to be the next tesla who's going to be the next google was actually the best the best thing is to be in it all the time there's a really good article i read that showed over the last 20 years a a simple what's called a 60 40 diversified portfolio versus investing in equities. And it looked over various time periods and it showed, you know, when things were going up, it sort of underperformed. When things were going down, it still went down, but it went down by less. But in every scenario, the client always felt, oh, that's not very good. I lost money there or I didn't make as much money as I could. But actually the interesting thing was it gave a better outcome. It's a bit like, you know, the the fable of the, 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 the hare and the tortoise. The reality is though, we're not conditioned to like that we don't like things when they fall and when things are going up we get fomo and we're like i want some of that why didn't i have more of more money in tesla or more money in google and it's you know it's just human nature and i think that that is the value of mark and i think that in my mind that's the value of a good financial advisor it's someone who's out of your head who's out of your family's head who can hopefully has your best interest in in mind and is asking you these questions and reminding you of these things that are not that they may have been true last year or they may have been true for the last five years, but they won't be true for the next five or 10 years going forward. And therefore, how do you create some control in an uncertain world? It's a very nice link, the idea of hindsight and knowing what we will know in the future and, of course, being better friends and allies to our future selves. Andrew Scott is an economist who's written The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. I mean, I've always liked big picture topics, and actually they don't come much bigger picture than life and longevity. And once you start digging, it does just open up into everything. And of course, I'm an economist, so I'm really interested in the economic implications. What I love is how it taps into so many other areas. And, you know, as an economist, I'm always interested in the big trends and how they shape the world around us. And I got into this because a lot of talk about an aging society, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which I think is an incomplete analysis of what is happening. And then once you start realizing that actually we're living longer and we've got this additional time, it does then start to go, wow, okay, so what do we do with extra time and when do we use it? And that's a pretty fundamentally deep and exciting question to think about. But I think what's for me is interesting as an economist looks at these big trends, you know, there's lots of big trends. There's obviously the environment and sustainability, there's AI and robotics. But this is one that is, I think, really personal as well, because we all know, wow, this is about me. It's not just about the world around me. It's about me. 
Right. And there are things, aren't there, like the idea that the pension system that we have and the assumptions that was based on being built for a different lifespan with a different set of assumptions and, and retired soldiers and you retired at a certain age and that you know, you'd probably statistically die 18 months to five years later. So the machinery that we work on is a machinery, I suppose, if you call it a social machinery that wasn't designed for us. Is it going to take, a, I suppose, a kind of New Deal style of boldness from, from government? Well, it will. I think, you know, actually, I'm quite optimistic about the change because I think we can see change already happening. And I don't think the change happens quickly or discreetly. So I think it is spread out over a long period of time. And it's a tough question we're being set because what, what's really happened is life expectancy gains. And for a long while, you know, obviously, Back in the 20th century, that was about reducing infant mortality, so more people got to middle age. And then we saw these tremendous reductions in midlife mortality, so more and more people are sort of living to 70. But what we're seeing now is actually most of the life expense gains are coming after 70. So it's not just more people getting to 70 years of age. We're now getting much more to 80, 90, and children today plausibly have a chance of living to 100. And so it's it's that stretching out of time that matters. And then, you know, for me, the big insight was recognizing that you know, time is a social convention. We structure time to make it work for us. And so that's what we've got to do now. But of course, we're really hung up about it. That's the challenge we've got when we start thinking about these longer lives. We think about it being older. For longer. But really what's happening is we're changing how we age and with more time ahead of us at every age and the importance of aging well, we need to age differently. Do you anticipate, I suppose, as people live older or live for longer, of increased social conservatism? Or is that something, again, that you would see changing as the nature of aging changes? So I think it could well change. I mean, it, it does appear that older people are more risk averse than younger people. But then again, I think that's often a question of sort of of how people have behaved in the past. And if you change how you behave. So, for instance, it may be that if I've only got 20 years of life left, I'm more risk averse. But if I've got 40 years of life left, perhaps I'm more prepared to take a gamble. You know, I, I try and separate out two different things. And one is what I call an aging society. Uh, and that is that uh, across the world, we've seen a fall in birth rates and more people living for longer. So there's more older people and the average age of society is, is higher. And then the other thing is not a change in the mixture of the population between more old and fewer young, but just everyone having longer lives. And actually, the younger you are, probably the more longer your life is. And adapting to that longer life. And I call that longevity. And we, de- we get very obsessed about an aging society, that there's more old and fewer young. And I, I, I think that is interesting because, of course, in a way, the young have never had a better chance of being old. And that, the problem with that sort of whole millennial Gen X baby boomer uh, debate is a Gen X person will never become a baby boomer, but they will go from being young to being old. And I kind of wish we could drop those generational labels because I'm not sure they're terribly helpful, actually. Do you see that there are productivity gains, economic gains for the for the nation, if you like, or for the world in using this resource better? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, the, the first thing to recognise, just as an economist, is, you know, forget about GDP, which of course I do think is important. It's just having a longer life where you're on average healthier for longer is a great thing. And that's valuable. So that that is a benefit in itself. And then let's think about how we do that time. But I think to turn it into a longevity dividend, we sort of need to do three things. So one is we're getting these longer lives. And whilst most of the years we're getting are healthy, not all of them are, the period at the end of life where we are, we're frail is getting longer. 
So we need to really push healthy life expectancy to match life expectancy, what's called a compression and morbidity. So we need to get healthy life expectancy to improve relative to life expectancy. And then as economists, I say, we also need to be productive for longer. And by being productive, I don't just mean working for money. It's also just doing something purposeful. Uh, it, you know, it could be caring for your children, or it could be caring for a partner. It could be pay, playing a role in the community, it, and this is something older people do quite a lot of. But it's about being purposeful across life, and you know that's the really key thing. Because if you are in your fifties, given life expectancy trends, you've still got a lot of life ahead of you. And so, how do you make sure that you're going to be healthy, but also good relationships and engaged and purposeful, with more future ahead? You've got to invest more in your future self. And, and do you think there are countries or are there places that you look at and you think that's called handling it well? Yeah. Again, there's two things happening. It's really important to distinguish the two. One is you know, there's fall in the birth rate and more people in for longer, which means you've got loads of older people. And actually, the UK isn't too bad on that score because our birth rate hasn't fallen as much or as quickly. Japan, Singapore, China, they've got a real challenge because the, you know, the birth rate in those countries, I think Singapore is about 1.1 per female. So the population is falling and it's mainly older people. And however well you're aging, that's going to create some challenges. So then there's this sort of living longer and being healthier for longer, which Japan is also very good at. But it's really struggling with this compositional change. So the UK has actually got an advantage. It doesn't have quite such a shift towards older age groups because his birth rate hasn't fallen as much. And that's that's good news, because it's easy to do that transition. But in terms of keeping people healthier for longer, keeping them active and engaged, the normal one to look at is Singapore, which is very acutely aware of what is happening. So they're providing education to older people. They're looking to redesign town planning, for instance, so that people have to walk more. It's easier to do health drop-ins, just to have something checked out. Uh, it's easier to get work and to be part of the community. All of these things really matter. So Singapore is doing probably the best. But what I am noticing is, you know, around the world, countries begin to wake up to this notion that actually ageing well starts early and how do we focus on achieving it? And we're seeing some things in the UK, both Newcastle and Manchester are trying hard to become age-friendly cities because, you know, that's that's kind of the reality now. We've got more and more people coming through uh, age 50 plus. They're going to start to dominate and we need them to be as healthy as possible. Again, this focus on an ageing society is about old people. That's only part of the story. We've got to make sure that the next generation of old people is the fittest they've ever been. And that's, that's the real challenge. So, Vicky, Andrew Scott there, I think, bring, brings us on very nicely from the, the sort of the previous thread, because he's talking there about the idea of of age not being what we think it will be and of our futures not being what we think based on our past experience, you know, and possibly seeing our our parents and grandparents at that age, it's not going to be the same. We're going to be more productive and healthier, you know, longer. And he also mentions a thing called, I think, age inflation, which is to say, you know, today's 50-year-olds, he says, pointing at himself, are a bit like the 35-year-old's a generation ago, uh, and today's 80-year-olds are a bit like the 60-year-olds of a generation ago. Is this something that you see changing, I suppose, the way we we think about our own futures in terms of laying prep, or, or are we are we just very bad at that as a species? I wouldn't say we were very bad at it, Matt, but I think that there's an element of conditioning going on here in, in terms of how we perceive age and particularly old age. 
And I love Andrew's uh, concept of age inflation. I'm approaching the ripe old age of 50, but I look back at my parents when they were 50 and I think, wow, how, how different. My daughters are six and seven years old. There's a fascinating thought there around if we if we believe in the concept of age inflation and actually being 50 nowadays is different to being 50 a couple of decades ago, then we have to wrap our heads around what that means in every facet of our life and in particular work. So I think for the first time, we are seeing workplaces with four or five generations of people in them. And that brings with it massive opportunity, but also challenge. Because these generations all have different assumptions about what work means. So different assumptions about their career, about their advancement, about the possibility of having multi-careers. So I think for employers, that has both opportunity and challenge. So opportunity in the sense that, isn't it amazing that we get all these diverse perspectives looking at problems and creating innovative solutions to some of the things that we're facing into in in this unknown future, but also challenge in that how do you create the right environment for all those different perspectives to coexist and thrive? The other bit for me is around this this thought that age inflation means that the, the middle part of our lives, if you like, so our adult lives before we enter into old age where our health might be impacted, requires us to continue learning for longer. And that's a that's a behavior. It's a habit that we need to invest in and nurture and grow in ourselves. And I'm not sure really how open we are to that as human beings. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think just to stretch out this point a bit more, as, as we all know, the Queen uh, is 95. So she was born in 1926. She has two of her youngest grandchildren, Lilibet, and Lucas, who were born in 2021. As we heard from Andrew, they'll probably have a 100-year life. So they've probably got a 50% chance of being alive in 2120. So think about 1926, when the Queen was born. Actually, there were more kind of horse and carts on the road than there were cars. Actually, the biggest problem in London was horse manure. So just think about how the world will change in that lifetime, just just to narrow it down a bit, I was born in 19, 1978. The global population was 4 billion. The global population today is 8 billion. So w- w- we are having a sort of demographic change that we never have never really understood. And, and really, this is all on the back of, of innovation. And as a society, we figured out how to evolve from an agrarian society where we derived our economic value from the land and then we moved to a capitalist system where we developed this concept called money and capital and then we took this stuff called coal and oil that was made over five million years and we took it out of the ground and turned it into motion and then we grew our economies and then our our global population grew from a billion to eight billion our global economy expanded at a rate we never understood and then we find ourselves in this situation where we can't keep growing and doing what we're doing to the to the planet. And I think we're at a really interesting inflection point where we need to think how how do we make this all how do we make this all work, whether it's for uh, our older society, 
you know, the contracts and relationships are changing. Before we were talking with, with, with Sarah, who helps us out with these podcasts, and we're talking about how responsibility has shifted. She was talking about her grandparents where she worked and you had a pension for life and and that was a great thing you know lloyd george introduced that in 1906 that's not a thing anymore i don't have a defined benefit pension i don't think you do matt or i don't think vicky does we we're responsible uh or maybe vicky does but uh but but we're responsible for our own financial future we're responsible for thinking how long will we all live how much we'll save uh and where and where do we invest our money uh and 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 our whole concept of retirement has it's not just Brighton. In America, we created this idea that you all moved to Florida and lived in these beautiful retirement homes and played golf. And I think what Andrew Scott talked about is the importance of purpose and purposeful life. And that might be looking after your children or grandchildren, or that might be volunteering uh and 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 giving back. But but I suppose what he is calling out is that I suppose a life without work can be be non-meaningful or not purposeful. I think it also relates to the previous conversation about why it's important that businesses have purpose, because if people go to work for these companies and aren't just earning a salary to sort of bribe themselves to be complicit in whatever that business is doing, it's really important for those businesses to have purpose. So wrapped in all of this, purpose is very important. And and also, Rob, the, the thought that you can find purpose in different things at different times throughout your life. So there isn't just a, you know, and I think many people feel this, this vocational calling that sees you in a career for 40 years, then you retire and, and you know, that's it. There's this increasing view that actually we have multiple careers you know, even though I'm 50, I'm working in an area of financial services now that five years ago, I wouldn't have dreamed that I'd have been working in. And that's the both the pace of change, but also the, fo- the focus on purpose, finding purpose, finding something that actually that gets me out of bed in the morning. And that actually, I, I want to, I want to go and do that. I want to go and make a difference. There's something in it as well, I think, about trying to shake people out of their, you know, their autopilots. I mean, we see you, you, almost one of the things that Greta did so so well was when she was at Davos and she stood there in front of the room and said, the building's on fire. You know, we have to stop thinking about this as a thing that we can kick down the road. This, this is now the problem I'm briefing you with, you know, generationally and globally. And I think one of the things our next guest does really, really well is challenging those assumptions. Now, her name is Safia Umoja Noble, and she is the author of Algorithms of Oppression. We are all clear that the colorblind ideology and the genderblind ideology of Silicon Valley always weirdly benefits mostly white and most mostly men. So it's kind of like they do see race. They just see certain, uh, you know, they see white and Asian people as being more valuable than anyone else. And then they mask that by saying, you know, we are the most qualified. They double down, triple down on the idea of the meritocracy that only the best and brightest come. But at the same time, they have all these strange hiring practices, like using cultural fit well, you know who culturally fits with you? Somebody just like you. There's all these strange narratives that they've invented to really close ranks and not allow 
different kinds of points of view into their companies and where they do. I mean, it isn't like people of color, Black and Latino people don't work at these companies, but guess what they work? They're cooks, they're grounds keepers. They can work as maids in the hotels where their clients stay, but somehow they don't think we have the intellectual capacity to participate in. Um, and at the same time, it's actually Black people who use these technologies and make them household names. So it's really a sick situation where it's so um, troubling the way that they think of our communities as either just power consumers or people who can work in like service to them, but not right as uh, interlocutors and as, as thought partners. How can we, and again, I hesitate to, to use you as a therapist, you know, but I know that must also be, be exhausting with white people going, you know, fix it for us. But what would your prescription be, I suppose, for Silicon Valley? I have found it has been uh, entry level and mid-career kinds of workers who have a lot of consciousness about this. And while they're trying to do better inside the companies, the people in the C-suite are reckless, just absolutely reckless. And, um, you know, the people in the C-suite are actually in the United States context, but I think even beyond, are accountable to their shareholders. They're not accountable to the public and they are required to maximize profit at all costs by law. I mean, there are many ways we should be thinking about this, but I think, of course, always foregrounding the injury that comes to the public and to... um, um, different types of publics, when we keep those concerns at the forefront, we will fix it. We will solve it. And we have a moral responsibility to. So it feels actually some of the things that you're saying feel as if there are echoes with the the other kinds of sustainability in a way. There has been in environmental behaviors from companies, a kind of decoupling of profit from value that's happened when investors have spotted that those companies don't have a model that is infinitely sustainable. And I wonder whether there is some way to hold companies that do harm to society to account by educating owners of shares and investors. The challenge here, I think, for people like me who are researchers, and of course, for people like you who are journalists, um, helping us translate this work to the public, is that the only people who've been able to narrate the value and importance of the tech companies and the tech sector are the tech companies themselves, for the most part. They've really narrated a kind of fast food, fast information, fast data landscape for us that's full of things that are harmful to us. And, you know, it's going to take some work for us to dislodge that narrative and help people really understand what they're dealing with. And that is really what our work is. And unfortunately, there's so much harm amassing um, and so much evidence of it that every year, you know, we have more to talk about. And But that that shifting of the public's perception of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with these companies is really important. Yeah. And, and are there, I mean, there's, there, there are all sorts of things, a little bit like when I read your book, actually, I felt like there were certain things I was across as indeed most listeners will feel, there are certain things in this in this conversation they'll have, they'll have thought many times, but there were certain things that I actually felt as if it had inoculated me a little bit. Do you think, is there hope for, the, for, for this kind of inoculation against things like fake news or the way in which the algorithms do promote bias, do create visceral feelings? Do you, do you think there is a, almost like an educational piece to be done even at school level or something like that? 
Absolutely. I do think that the more we talk about what these technologies are, the more we can storytell and we can apprehend what we're dealing with, the more people have power in relationship to them at the individual level. I mean, most of these problems have to be dealt with at the policy level, kind of structurally. But yeah, of course. I mean, listen, I live in LA. People who live around and in closer proximity to film and television being made, for example, really understand like the scammery of it. You know what I mean? Like they understand the fantasy of it. They understand the business part of it. They know like everybody they know is doing a thing and it's like, it's just like a hustle and a grind. They don't really relate to it in the same way. Maybe someone in the middle of the country who has never met an actor, who's never met a person who's in the entertainment industry. Right. So there's something about the closeness of seeing like the, that, oh, behind that facade, that thing is being held together with like tape, masking tape and bubble gum and Q-tips. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think that's why we need to show the underside of what these technologies are, what their harm is, how they're made, how, you know, exactly what you're talking about, that the kinds of biased and, and discriminatory data that go into feeding these machine learning algorithms and how we get the output. Because what that does is it has us go like, oh, I see what's happening there. And then, you know, that's really different than thinking, oh, it's magic and it's the best idea possible that we can get. It's more like, hey, hold on a second. How did we arrive at this decision? I don't think I agree with this. Let me push back. Do you see hope or do you do you feel that there's going to have to be some form of, I hesitate to say kind of a big snap moment, but do you think it's there is hope for gradual growth through this? Or do you think it's going to come in the form of, 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 a, of, a, of some form of legislation or uprising against it? I think I have a lot of hope. I will tell you, first of all, I think we still have our sense of humor. I think that we understand that a lot is at stake, but also we do see a lot of different kinds of networks at play. The one thing I always think about is how we do remember that there was a time before everything was recorded and that there was a time when mistakes could be made and people could move through them. And we have made so many mistakes. I can't even tell you how many mistakes I've made in my life um, that I thank God, have been able to recover from or move through. There's been like the space of compassion in this world for our ability to bounce back, to recover, to rehabilitate all the things. We know a lot about that. And that is one of the most hopeful sensibilities that I feel like we have to offer. I think about that for my kids. I think, you know, I don't want them to grow up in a world where every single thing they do is so documented that it's like an episode of Black Mirror that, you know, whatever they did when they were 13 determines what will happen for them when they're 30. That That's no kind of world we want to live in. And those are the things that I think are really at stake when we talk about these companies. It's the constant surveillance, the constant profiling, the, the, the amount of knowledge that governments and companies have about us that can algorithmically sort us into opportunity or foreclose other kinds of possibilities from us. That's what's happening right now. Those are the kinds of things that scholars like me, we document to say, hey, is this really how we want to live? This can't be it. This can't be it. And I think that, you know, that I do feel hopeful because I think no one wants their life overprescribed. People need to feel their full humanity, the highs and lows, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the possibility for love and redemption. 
I mean, to me, that is what motivates me and gets me up every morning is I want that kind of world. I need it for myself. I want it for everyone else. Dr. Safia Emoja Noble there, and that was quite something. I don't think anybody, any one of us would have predicted from chatting about algorithms, Vicky and, and Rob, it, it does become a conversation about humanity, doesn't it? Do we accept that we are going to be quantified and we're going to be kind of uh, uh, little strings of code in somebody's machine, or do we strive for more than that? And I, I wonder whether this sort of appeal for more humanity in the equation is something that you, you sort of resonates with you, I suppose, at, at St. James's Place. Yeah, no, I mean, at the heart of what St. James's Place does is face-to-face advice. Let me not talk about financial advice, but let me talk about health apps. So you can go on your phone and download all these apps that will make you do more yoga, meditate more, more push-ups, more sit-ups, whatever it is. But it turns out that behaviorally we can't do it. So there is something missing. And yet we do want to go to a spin class or we do want to go to a tennis camp because there's something about doing it together with, with other people. So and, and look, here, here lies the contradiction. On the one hand, these tools are brilliant, but I don't think they're the be-all and end-all. And I think what we're learning is how do we combine real-life relationships with these tools to create better interactions. And Vicky, I mean, if I can bring you in on this, one of the things I know we were, we were talking about last time was that this idea that we have got to sort of be able to step outside what the algorithms are telling us we are and what we're supposed to be doing and kind of, I suppose, re-establish that <laughs> they're not the boss of us, we're actually the boss of them. You know, is, is that something that I suppose you'd see us all being able to do in our, in our daily lives? Is it a sort of... A, this, it feels like it might be quite exhausting if we're constantly having to sort of fight back against this idea that we're a target market for somebody. But I think in anything like this, when we're trying to you know, imagine the possibility of a future different to the reality that we're living in today, we're trying to challenge enduring assumptions. <laughs> you know, these assumptions are, are things that we've lived with for many, many years and they are reinforced time after time after time in mainstream media they're locked into our ideology so I think it is quite challenging for us but what what I think is interesting and what perhaps um, going back to Covid again um, helped us to see perhaps was the linking between some of these future challenges and issues that we're facing so it not just being about how are we going to tackle climate change how are we going to tackle the inequalities in the world but looking at it through the lens of okay so where do climate change and inequality intersect I I think a lot of the time when we when we're trying to think about how we tackle these big societal issues we tend to want to only focus on them one at a time almost like actually we can't cope with more than that in fact our conversation today makes me think of the, the poem London by William Blake. He talks about the thing that's holding us all down and, and, and keeping us back, being our mind-forged manacles, the, the things that we can't move beyond, that we all carry with us. And it's fascinating today hearing from Safia about the way in which we delegate that job to algorithms that maybe keep us in the dark about certain things, including the assumptions that we live with. And of course, Mark talking about stripping away those assumptions and how necessary it is to move beyond that if we're going to spot threats and opportunities. And Andrew 
again, talking about how even assumptions we make about ourselves are changing all the time and how we can move beyond them. And hopefully today's discussions have shown that we can move beyond them. And Vicky Foster and Rob Gardner, there's nobody I'd rather have done it with. Thanks ever so much for joining me as ever. You've been brilliant and you've been listening to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. For more brilliant discussions like the ones we've had today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information and full show notes, just go to sjp.co.uk slash tc2podcast. Tomorrow comes today.